You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. And wow. It didn't occur to me till just now how appropriate my theme song is for the uh, episode that we'll be recording right now. We're talking about Prince of Darkness by John Carpenter, about old Scratch himself. And so we're going to uh, uh, have a good time uh, incorporating the theme song of the show into that, I'm sure. Uh, but my name is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. We are here for the Halloween crossover that we do every year. This has become one of my favorite little traditions that we do as a network. And this year, um, the theme is John Carpenter. If you're listening to this one, you've probably already heard me on several of the other episodes. I have to uh, admit I'm a little self-conscious about the fact that the network actually voted for John Carpenter films because I feel like it was to appease me because I think everyone knows that John Carpenter is my favorite artist and they all want to make me feel good or something. So I felt this weird moral obligation to appear on almost every episode of the crossover except uh, ride the high man ride the high <laughs> exactly i think the only one i missed was the thing um and that was because it was uh, uh fully signed up for so um but so we'll be doing prince of darkness um go back and listen if you haven't already heard uh, me and michael farmer will be talking about halloween on the flagship christian humanist podcast the christian feminist podcast i sat in with victoria and christina to talk about the Fog and Book of Nature, uh, Todd Pedler, Dan, and I talked about <laughs> They Live. <laughs> and, and I did recommend uh, them to go back and listen to me and Carter talk about They Live from a few years ago as well uh, on this particular podcast. But, oh, and um, the uh, book, uh, what's the uh, City of Man is doing the thing. And so that will be the John Carpenter films that are, are being covered this year on the crossover. And joining me today, I'm very, very grateful Um 10:30 at night here on the East Coast to be talking with uh, Nathan Gilmore of the uh, of the flagship. Nathan, how you doing? I am doing all right. I uh, yeah, this might be the latest I've ever started a podcast recording, so uh, <laughs> appropriate for uh, horror movies. Yes, um, and this is all, of course, Carter Stepper's fault because he chose to live on the West Coast. Uh, Carter, how are you? I'm I'm doing all right. Uh, full of piss and vinegar, and uh, excited to talk about the Prince of Darkness. Yes. So, uh, what I mean, one of John Carpenter's kind of long, long overlooked films that I think recently people have started like reevaluating, um, and it's actually one of my favorites of his films, and uh, and I think that I'm really looking forward to hashing out the various theological conspiracy theories uh, that you get uh, that I'm sure that I'll be able to pull out of uh, Nathan Gilmore here. So caca, um, Danny, it's all caca. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I know that uh, Drew Vantland uh, posted on our private page about this movie. He thought the movie kind of fell apart for him. And I, I don't know. I, I, I have a different opinion. I suppose I actually think the movie uh, holds up pretty well. And I, I'm, uh, I'm very, uh, I'm very excited to hear what you guys think about it. But um, before I get into it, um, let me uh, just uh, rehash the plot of the film real quickly. There's um, you basically, there's a, a, an exposed conspiracy that the um, some 
sect of the Catholic Church has been holding essentially Satan uh, captive in the form of this green swirling goo in a cylinder in the basement of some long abandoned Catholic church in LA and uh, his time has come basically. And he is calling to his father uh, who is this sort of other dimensional being who's kind of an ancient evil God. There's very Lovecraftian themes uh, in this movie that we'll definitely kind of talk about, but um, he's trying to escape to uh, summon back this uh, dark God that is actually Satan's father to kind of return to earth and uh, tear the whole thing down basically. And, the, a priest played by Donald Pleasance um, kind of inherits the keys to this church, and he recruits a set of academics. Uh, it's a really in- interesting grad school movie. Um, <laughs> it's a set of academics who are kind of led by Professor Howard Barak, who's played by the really great Vincent Victor Wong. Uh, Victor Wong, who you probably recognize if you saw Tremors. Uh, he's in Big Trouble in Little China. He's a really recognizable, lovable, wonderful actor, and he plays the leader of this group of academics. Can't forget Karate Kid. Oh, if, is he in Karate Kid? <laughs> I didn't even realize that. That's not Mr. Miyagi. It's a totally different guy. Isn't it? Who do- Oh, who does he play in Karate Kid? He's not Mr. Miyagi. No, Never no, no, that's Pat Morita. Yeah, no. I'm going to go ahead and just be quiet for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> I was like, it's been a while since I've seen it. But. I'm like, man, I, you know, I, I feel like I've watched Karate Kid recently. And I, <laughs> but Victor Wong is, uh, is terrific in this movie as always. And, uh, but anyway, and so there's a, uh, an escape. The, the the goo uh, basically takes over one of the grad students and there is a, a fight by to keep... By peeing in her mouth. By, yes, there's there's lots of exchanging of liquids uh, in this movie and uh, and we can uh, talk about that, I guess, if you will. Um, but the basically the plot culminates with a, an attempt to stop um, the incarnated Satan from uh, bringing his father over into this dimension through a mirror. And so, um, that's kind of the, the plot of the movie, uh, without going into too many of the gory details. So first of all, let's just kind of step back and talk about John Carpenter, uh, in general, Carter, I know that you are one of uh, the people hoping for John Carpenter. <laughs> and so what are your sort of feelings about John Carpenter, your experience with him, whatnot? We lost Carter. Nope, I'm here. Um, John Carpenter, man, I kind of came to him a little bit late. Watched the thing in college, and uh, but um, and then just kind of went from there. And I've I've watched everything I can get my hands on without spending too much money on it. Um, I like to think of him as a blue collar auteur. Um, I think he's got a great artistic uh, vision and vibe for all of his movies. He basically reinvented the horror genre in the eighties and seventies. Um, he is fan. Just writes fantastic dialogue. The music is always great. And his practical effects are amazing. Um, so I couldn't be more of a fan. Well, I could be probably more of a fanboy, but I am a, a very much a fanboy of John Carpenter because I think he's, like I said, I think he's very skilled as an artist, but um, as you pointed out recently on social media, Danny, something I've always appreciated him is that he's not <laughs> he's not stuffy and he's not full of himself. He's not an artiste. Um, he's just like a guy who makes good movies. <laughs> and, um, and really, I think uh, innovative and imaginative movies too. And I think he's a bit underrated, especially when I look at like the Rotten Tomatoes score on this film. 
Um, he's an underrated and underappreciated, perhaps, uh, uh, horror film uh, uh, artist. So Yeah, and I've said on previous podcasts that I've recorded this week, I'm probably going to be repeating myself uh, throughout the week. But uh, and in addition to this, I've actually written an essay for Pop Culture and Theology about the origins of evil in John Carpenter cinema. And I talked a lot about this movie. So that'll be coming out, I think, on Halloween Day. So I'll probably be rehashing a lot. of. Well, I've been thinking a lot about Carpenter. But one thing I've repeatedly talked about is that he has his vision of cinema. I would call him an auteur, but it's very much in the kind of throwback to the fifties mode in like the studio system version of an auteur, like Howard Hawks, who's sort of his, his own personal idol. Um, and so in, in many ways you can think of him as kind of a seventies and eighties and maybe into the nineties version of Hitchcock, who's sort of doing great art, great, um, individual art inside a very kind of smooth studio system. And so he's kind of an interesting mix between, uh, yeah, popular artist and auteur. But, but I just love how gritty and down to earth and real his, like the settings are like, yes, there's no, there's no stuffy academics, like in a Lovecraft story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, it's, if anything, he's more like Robert E. Howard where it's like, there's something evil. Can I kill it? Great. <laughs> like that's, that's kind of the vibe. Maybe not so much in this movie though. Yeah. This movie is, like I said, very Lovecrafty and, and down to the point of including academics into the, as the main characters of it. But Nathan, I'm not sure about your experience with John Carpenter. Have you seen much or. Well, I, I have established myself over the years as the most film illiterate person on the network. <laughs> and uh, John Carpenter films are no exception. Uh, for whatever reason, I saw big trouble in little China, like three or four times as a teenager. Uh, so I was, I was getting hardcore flashbacks from the, the cast in this movie. Yes. Uh, but you know, really beyond that, I mean, you know, I saw, uh, they live at some point, but I mean, I haven't seen the thing. I haven't seen, uh, really most John Carpenter movies. So, um, I'm coming to this, you know, as someone who watched, you know, Kurt Russell too much as a teenager, (laughs) Yeah, Kurt Russell is definitely one of his recurring um, collaborators for sure. Uh, he's not in this one, but he is in many. And uh, and Big Trouble in Little China is great. Um, and uh, and I think I actually would recommend Nathan to watch Assault on Precinct Thirteen. It's like a Western set in a kind of urban police precinct, and I, th- I think you would uh, I think you would actually like that movie. And so uh, I would uh, I would I would recommend that one to you personally. So um, so. Um, Let's start with reactions uh, to this movie, and I'll start with Nathan because he has a—he's a, getting a Dan Brown vibe from this movie. <laughs> oh, I ever so yeah. I mean, you know, so first of all, uh, you know the the on the nose naming—I don't know if that's a John Carpenter convention, but uh, you know, the University of the Sciences is where we get all of all of our academics from. Uh, you know, the Brotherhood of Sleep is the uh, you know the secret order within the Catholic Church. Uh, that apparently has an old priest literally keep a key to a secret dungeon where they keep Satan imprisoned. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, Dan Brown, you know, is, is you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure the impetus for uh, Philip Jenkins, the church historian's quip that uh, the last socially acceptable bigotry and polite company is anti-catholicism yes and you know i mean that man uh did i get that vibe here i mean you know the catholic church in this movie uh literally keeps satan in a jug and uh you know (laughs) keeps it a secret from uh everyone 
and uh, you know what they're what they seem most uh, distressed about is not that they have Satan in a jug, but that uh, you know the that people might discover that they have Satan in a jug. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, uh, so I mean, you know, with that said, you know, I, I did note the as you said, I mean, Lovecraftian notion of evil. So I mean, you know, Lovecraft is notable for what I would call a kind of reverse Manichaean take on reality uh, in which there are powers that are, you know, simply beyond morality, beyond good and evil to you, to use Nietzsche's phrase. Uh, and that, you know, human beings because of our uh, limited imagination, you know, label them as evil. Um, and, you know, that seems to be what's going on here. I mean, you know, the, the father of Satan uh, doesn't seem to have any real motive other than being the anti-God. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, it's a paycheck, so that's what he does. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, as Carter noted earlier, you know, there's something evil. Uh, we have sharp instruments. Let's strike the evil thing with sharp instruments until the movie ends. <laughs> yeah, it's a that's a good synopsis of the plot, actually. Uh, but there is also like a helplessness to it, right? The The, I don't know, as these academics, and it's interesting how like, it sets up a world that confounds and frustrates both the religious and the academic, right? It's, or there is kind of a metaphysic, there is sort of a, a deity out there um, that frustrates sort of secular academics. Um, but it doesn't look anything like what the Christian church has always professed. Um, and, and in fact, looks um, much more something like um, H.P. Lovecraft would have invented himself down to the point where Jesus yeah. is an alien. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, I, think I, I, I couldn't tell if Jesus or Satan was the space alien. So Jesus was the space alien. Yeah. Well, yes. they both are. And I think they're just he came like, to com- warn okay. Us. Yeah. They're yeah, like yeah. competing races. Yeah, so it's right I, honestly, out of love before I ever thought. Yeah. Yeah, but before I ever thought Lovecraft, I thought Ancient Aliens. Yeah, well, and, well it's because it's both. Yeah, Ancient yeah. Aliens basically cribs Lovecraft, right? I mean, yeah, when you, yeah if think, you read if you read at the Mountain of Madness, I mean, it's basically Ancient Aliens. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it totally is. I mean, and and I think that's why this what this movie is going for, like the the whole fact that you have a doctorate in f- physics there, and or doctoral student in phys- uh, and f- multiple doctoral students in physics, psychology, and then one in theology. Um, shows that they're what they're shooting for is some kind of um, they're shooting for like this idea that well like Lovecraft what we think of as gods or evil or the metaphysical is sort of metaphysical but it's also scientifically explainable mm-hmm. so it's bringing those 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 fields together in a way saying well you're both kind of wrong because there is something beyond that's super or supernatural, but it's, it is explainable um, in scientific terms. We just don't have the science to explain it yet. Yeah. And then morally, because it's not derived from, you know, what I would call a platonic or, or Augustinian notion of evil, where evil is always parasitic on good, but it's a, it's an equal and opposite force, right? I mean, you know, the, um, Victor Wong's character, and I got to find his name here in my notes, Barack. Barack, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, he <laughs> he makes the bizarre statement that, you know, it's a it's an anti-God, just like matter has anti-matter. Yeah. And when that's the case, once again, uh, there is no motive to evil. And in fact, you know, I mean, it, it kind of becomes incoherent to talk about it as evil, even though they talk about the green goo as pure evil, 
uh, even though that phrase is itself incoherent because evil is a distortion of a, pri- a logically prior good. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one of the things, you know, as a, as a teacher of philosophy, you know, uh, I, I find that this, you know, falls into an incoherence that, you know, um, I think is, you know, characteristic of Lovecraft's fiction, uh, because, I mean, uh, in order to have evil, you do have to have uh, that parasitic relationship. Otherwise, it's not evil anymore. It is simply other. I, I think that's actually what makes it kind of terrifying, though, because if I could put it in Dungeons and Dragons terms, it's not... Um, lawful evil which is what we expect from the devil it's chaotic evil it's it's it just just it's consumptive is that a word consumptive sure. it's consumptive and destructive um for um for no reason and if if we do take it in a nietzschean direction which i am want to do um if you couldn't already tell from my skype profile picture <laughs> um, and yes we're still um, using skype listener yes <laughs> yes yes we are that old um but i think um so let's take let's just say that it's like it, it, like let's take nietzsche's idea we're going beyond good and evil and nathan you're obviously way more uh proficient and Nietzsche than me, but as as I understand it, it's the idea that yeah, there is no good, there's no evil, there's just will, right? So in that sense, we might say the Prince of Darkness, cue heavy metal solo, down and now, the Prince of Darkness isn't evil, but the Prince of Darkness is more powerful than us. So while calling it evil may not be ultimately, you know, um, the correct term. Um, it is something that is more powerful than us and therefore should be feared, right? Is it, 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 which is how I tend to take Lovecraft as, as well. Yeah, and, and like I said, I mean, I think the incoherence that I find in it, and I mean, we can move on past this because there's a lot of good stuff to talk about with this movie, but where I, where I couldn't get my mind around the movie, right, uh, is that, you know, Again, if you've got a character that, you know, is evil in what I'd call an Augustinian sense, uh, there is some kind of distortion of good that that evil character is pursuing, right? Uh, Because in this movie, you know, I mean, there is such a thing as pure evil, and I've got that jotted down in my notes because I I just found that phrase hilarious. Um, You know, I mean, what the father of Satan intends to do if it ever gets to this side of the mirror remains entirely unsaid, right? I mean, uh, it could be that it just intends to set up, you know, franchises of infinity cones on every street corner. We don't know that. Uh, but, sorry, Danny, I had to throw that in there. But, you know. You hear me complain about um, that on the podcast, I yeah. <laughs> um, But, you know, I mean, the you know, because it is simply an antiparticle, uh, it basically remains a cipher. So, I mean, I... I I couldn't bring myself to be frightened of the whatever is on the other side of the mirror just because it was a completely motiveless other side of the mirror. Is it motiveless or is it just the, or is it just the fact that it's motives elude us, which is always like the Lovecraftian angle, right? Like it's not that it doesn't have a motive. It's just that it's motives are so beyond human comprehension that, trying to assign motivation to it is why we call it evil in the first place, even though it's not any more evil than we are in, in this sort of metaphysical universe. Right. Um, 
but I yeah, know, and, and, and I guess that's where the I, I think that's where the Nietzschean angle falls apart a little bit because you know Nietzsche always talks about or not always in Beyond Good and Evil in Genealogy of Morals I should name particular texts instead of doing from the beginning of time Friedrich Nietzsche argued <laughs> no uh, you know uh, you know I mean in sort of his big books on moral philosophy you know uh, he seemed to be nodding towards uh, a kind of creative and uh, you know, life-seeking post-Christian atheism, right? And that's intelligible, right? So, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, I mean, if you are attempting, if, you know, Carpenter or if Lovecraft is attempting to say uh, these sorts of things are incomprehensible, well, mission accomplished, but that kind of makes for a, a disappointing story because mm. what happens in the story? Well, you can't understand it. Oh, well, that's fun. <laughs> can, can I ask Danny? Uh, can I? You're, you're more. I mean, I think you're even more of a Carpenter fan than me. Yeah. Have uh, I know that he's called the Thing, this film, and the Mouth of Madness his apocalyptic trilogy. Yeah. Right. That was the next thing so out of my notes. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Thing is one of my favorite movies of all time, and and I really enjoy Prince of Darkness, but I have not yet watched Mouth of Madness. In fact, I was thinking about watching it tonight. Have you watched it? And and does the do these themes play out at all in that movie? In the Mouth of Madness, yes, the Thing definitely does. Right, the Thing is in directly it's in the direct lineage with hp lovecraft um it's the story that inspired the thing is called uh, who goes there and if you read that you can't help but see echoes of in the, at the mount in the mountains of madness right there's it's a, a very clear connection and the the, the creature in the thing has very often tentacled sorts of uh, appearances, right? And, and you've got uh, very clear references to Lovecraft there. This movie, baby think, Cthulhu, yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> um, this movie as well, and in uh, at the in the mouth of madness, just you know, verbally uh, refers to Lovecraft, of course, and the title. But the, that plot is a little different in in that the corruption of the evil is actually brought in by a writer. It's in some ways like a, uh, uh, I don't know if it's, a, it's like basically taking Stephen King as a kind of progenitor as like a gateway to um, actual madness that destroys the world. And so his fiction actually, the, the Carter, uh, no, what's his name? Uh, Sutter Kane is his name in the, the writer in that, in that movie, his fiction um, is being made into a movie and once everybody sees the movie it will just destroy the world because it acts as sort of a gateway to these very Lovecraftian creatures that can then come pass through um, Don't pages. spoil the ending though please Yes, No, no, I won't, I won't um, but that that's the setup of that movie um, and it's great, it's really a really terrific movie um, showing John Carpenter still had I mean, chops all the way through. I honestly have seen all of them now. I haven't seen Starman in forever, so I can't really speak to that one. But, um, but I honestly, I thought Memoirs of an Invisible Man is still a really interesting and good movie, right? And so, um, and at the mouth of madness is is very very good movie. And so, and it definitely fits in with what you guys are talking about with these Lovecraftian themes about this kind of senseless, um, uh, what we just call evil, right? Um, and so. I would actually, so I want to run this by you. I guess it's a little late since I've already submitted the essay. 
and if I'm wrong, it's going to be very embarrassing. Uh, but I, the conclusion, I, <laughs> the conclusion I kind of wrote myself to, and I suppose since this show will come out before that essay gets published, I think I can go back and retroactively provide a link uh, in the show notes after the essay comes out. So I'll try to do remember to do that when it comes out. But um, what I kind of wrote myself to when thinking about not necessarily the nature of evil in John Carpenter's films, but the origins of evil, like where it comes from, is that John Carpenter is like a secular Pelagianism. Uh, and, and there is like a, a denial of original sin and that evil is something from the outside, from beyond. Um, and it is somehow incorporated and takes over the body of a, of a, of a person who becomes basically a vessel and just vanishes and is replaced by that evil. And so that's exactly what happens with the, the, the woman who gives birth to Satan, she doesn't actually give birth to Satan. She actually gets transformed into Satan, basically, right? And I, I would argue that that kind of explains Michael Myers. I think that explains exactly what happens in The Thing. Um, those, aren't no, those are no longer people. Uh, they are people who are replaced by the, the monster from outer space, right? And so that's how I understand evil in, uh, in John Carpenter. It is not something human beings in his, I think, worldview are generally not um, born evil. They're, that is something from outside of our dimension that kind of takes over, corrupts, and replaces them. Um, the, there's, I mentioned this earlier today. I recorded the show with Michael Farmer about Halloween, um, and I think I said during that episode that in very few, with very few exceptions, and Christine is the one exception I can think of off the top of my head, there aren't necessarily like, nat- there, you don't have that evil bully who gets his comeuppance in uh by the monster in in a john carpenter movie christine you do get that of course (laughs) but um but that's a stephen king story it's not really his story but um in most of the cases you you have basically good people who are corrupted and replaced by an evil thing from beyond and so i don't know if that makes the story any more interesting for you nathan Uh, but that's how i kind of understand evil the the origins of it and that's kind of what i wrote about for for break it's almost yeah. like assimilating people yeah. is what evil does yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I, and I think it's interesting because i mean what i find a lot more interesting uh is what goes on visually to kind of trigger that sense of uh evil or that sense of uh really i mean it's a, a disgust reflex that the carpenter relies on right so i mean there's a lot of images of ants Lots of images of cockroaches. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the the Satan goo propagates by peeing in people's mouths. Uh, you know, I mean, you get bodies decaying. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it it's it, it's definitely, you know, sort of a... It's playing on, you know, a kind of biological revulsion to certain parts of the life cycle, yeah. right? Uh, so, I mean, it's a... I, I, I guess that's what, you know... Um, because I picked up on that by the time we get to the Sistine Chapel shot where, you know, the, the Kelly, whatever she has become is reaching through and the father of Satan is reaching through on the other side and their fingers touch and ET phone home and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, by that point, you know, I've, I've, I've picked up on the fact that, you know, okay, he's trying to gross me out with lots of peeing in mouths. And so, you know, again, there's not a whole lot of terror there. I'm just kind of wondering, okay, you know, what, what is this, you know, critter striking the Sistine Chapel pose? What does it want? And, you know, because 
the movie doesn't last long enough for us to find out what it wants. Again, you know, I mean, I, I find it interesting and, you know, I can see the sort of, you know, uh, hey, let's do, you know, lots of blood and dec- decaying bodies and cockroaches and peeing in people's mouths. But, you know, the, the, the overall psychological effect just didn't hit me. I'm I'm probably the wrong audience for this movie. <laughs> well, you, I'll, just, it, I'll just go ahead and grant that. <laughs> well, I would say it sounds like you would like the Rob Zombie version of Halloween more than the John Carpenter version of Halloween. Then, Hallow- I mean, his okay. his whole point is that there is no reason behind Michael Myers. Um, he is just an embodiment of evil, right? And, and I mean, the Doctor Loomis and that a scientist basically relies on a metaphysical explanation for Michael Myers, like he is pure evil, right? Uh, and so there, there's a way in which John Carpenter overtly resists um, giving a reason for for the chaos and the evil. It is just what it is. It's a, it's a force outside of uh, mankind that, that threatens us. And, and I think that this movie yeah, shares yeah. that. And, 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 and I think that's just it. I, I think that the characters historically and literarily that terrify me the most are the ones who are convinced that they're right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the the idea that there is a, a pure evil out there, whatever that phrase means, I still think it's an incoherent phrase. Yeah. Uh, that just doesn't trigger terror in me the way that, for instance, you know, someone who says the world is going to be better once I have hmm. done what needs to be done in order to make the world better. That kind of character terrifies me. Yeah. You know, this doesn't. I mean, it's is like, that because they're sympathetic, Nathan? Because you're you can sympathize with their reasoning, even if you ultimately reject their their reasoning and or their yeah, plans. I I think that's about right. It's because they actually have reasons for doing the terrible things they do, rather than just being you know a a and and it, this is going to sound awful when I say it, but I mean, uh, the father of Satan just feels like a plot device. Hmm. Um, I mean, I would, I don't know. I just think it's a different uh, definition of evil that are different. I, I think it's a, a, a style that you're, you're talking about then. Because, I mean, I don't think it's any less terrifying to be completely insignificant. And I think that's what that's what's terrifying about the Lovecraftian um, cosmic horror is the fact that we are nothing right, in the scope of the universe. And it's like we are the ant. And so should the ant be less terrified of a boot because it, it the boot has no reason to step on it, right? You know what I mean? I don't know, Loki. Uh, well, that's I use that. <laughs> I, that's what I'm using that that, I, that phrase. No, that's exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think that's. I think for some people, maybe dispositionally, uh, Danny. Yeah, it, it, it's it's or or Nathan. It's harder to um, maybe find that frightening. But I think that's actually the point. Is that whereas with someone like a, a some figure who has a reason, right? We're terrified because they have a reason and we can understand that reason and we can kind of see their point, even if we think it's wrong. Um, and so that scares us, I think, because it hits that that strikes home, right? Mm-hmm. That strikes at our own heart and to say like, oh, right, gosh, right. The, I yeah, the fear, that. the fear and the pity, right? right I mean, that's what right, Aristotle exactly. always goes back to the fear and the pity. The, the and whole, I and I, I mean, and I, I, I don't pity the father of Satan. Right, right. Well, I think that I think um, what so you can, you know, I think that 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 makes sense to me. It makes sense what you're saying. But um, the reason I do find um, maybe not the father of Satan so much scary, but like Lovecraftian ideas scary is is the the utter and complete lack of of meaning, purpose, 
and intention in it. I think the whole point is to make you feel like the universe is spinning out of control and that nothing makes sense anymore. And that's why there's. And and maybe I've just gotten numb to that because I drive so much in Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) Because if there if there is a being that is indifferent to my life or death, it is I two eighty five. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I mean that that's why the body horror happens in in Lovecraftian stories. Um, That's why it's intrinsic to Lovecraftian stories. The body horror is meant to be sort of symbolic of nature unraveling around the protagonists and and they're seeing that all of their you know physics and and i jokingly said this before we started but but um there's a couple quotes one is our common sense breaks down on the subatomic level and then another we've sought to impose order on the universe but we have discovered something very surprising while order does exist in the universe it is not at all what we had in mind both of those are indications of um this sort of philosophical uh, position that um, we have scientific, rational and philosophical knowledge, but we don't, it doesn't actually work the way we think it works. There's like a higher order of rationality that is way beyond what we're capable of understanding. And that, I mean, you may not find that terrifying and that's, you know, uh, you know, well as may be, but um, that is what's supposed to terrify you at any rate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, disposition. I think that's a, a perfect term you used, Carter. It's just sort of people are predisposed to be afraid of different things, right? And Rob Zombie. I mean, I, I haven't seen the, his version of Halloween for a while, so I would like to go back and give it a fair shot. John Carpenter was not a fan of it. I can tell you, I, I was. I'm blessed enough to go see him uh, Steel City Con in August, and I got to meet him and get an autograph and picture and all that. Someone during the Q&A asked him his thoughts, and he was very forthcoming and honest, as you can imagine. Like He's, he's a very good, blunt man, right? Um, um, when asked about all the sequels to Halloween, about his opinions of them, and his, his answer is, my opinion is I get a really good paycheck. <laughs> that, that's what I like about them, right? Um, but when someone asked him what he thought of uh, Rob Zombies, he just replied with next question, which got a really interesting um, um, view. But because Rob Zombie applied a psychological reason for Michael Myers's murderous uh, nature, right? And so that's exactly what he was not going for. He thinks, for John Carpenter himself, it is the unknowing. It is the the lack of reason, the lack of um, any kind of rationale that makes it um, frightening. And so, I mean, it is a dispositional choice, right? Or, or you know, preference, it, I guess. That we're it, it's about. kind of like when I used to teach Moby Dick and I was going into all the symbolic possible reference and you always have at least one student who's like, but isn't it just a whale? <laughs> and they're just hunting a whale? <laughs> yes. Isn't that what this book is about? <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, so I, I definitely want to talk more about the theology later on, but um, I just want to kind of hit on a few things that, that I, I think are worth talking about. Um, first of all, like before, I, I don't want to get too far without talking, and this might be related to the theological question, I suppose, but... There, I can imagine a, a certain kind of viewer being um, raising an eyebrow, perhaps, at the role of women in this movie. Um, in that, it's basically women are the vessels uh, for this. Uh, they're like the initial vessels for this conversion, uh, and and it's not only a woman who is chosen to embody to incarnate Satan, but it's also two women um, that are the first kind of 
disciples, if you will, um, who then go around corrupting a, a few of the men. And so I, I have seen people sort of and bring that up. in their mouths. Yeah. And there's... <laughs> And so I know I keep coming back to it, but so does the movie. I need to sort of explain that, I suppose. Yeah, the and vomit. Yeah, I mean, good and, lord. And, and that's how you know that Brian Marsh is the chosen one, because when someone tries to pee in his mouth, he ducks. Yes, <laughs> that's right. He's the Neo of this movie, right? And so, yeah, not today, Jason. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I took it. I don't know the the whole. I guess I was thinking of it as a kind of cinematic reference to The Exorcist uh, and, and that kind of uh, like satanic film that we thought of, that we've, we've inherited. But I don't know. That's a good point. Uh, it is it is very unnerving and it is definitely body horror for sure. But I, Although by the end, again, I just become so accustomed to it that it just becomes hilarious to watch it happen again and again. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, it's this, that, that's I, again – that's my shortcoming as a viewer. I'm not the audience that <laughs> this movie I will admit, intended for. I will admit it is not John Carpenter's most elegant of uh, villain attacks. Um, it, it's true. It's... <laughs> I'm trying now that you've mentioned it. I'm trying to think of like an alternative solution to the problem. Like how how does one? Uh, I mean, uh, the thing the thing is really the the um, crowning achievement, right? Where yeah. the blood kind of moves and you know goops into people. But yeah, I suppose that's probably. Um, yeah, I suppose I can imagine that have, have been happening, but um, well, but I don't want to lose my point about the the women being the kind of vessels. Um, and so, I mean, what were your thoughts on that? I knowing the full body of Carpenter's work, I do not accept the argument that he is a sexist filmmaker. Like, if you watch um, someone's watching me, a TV movie that he made in the seventies, which is a very Hitchcockian kind of uh, um, rear window esque um, thriller it's very clear he has very strong um, feminist kinds of um, impulses. And so I, I, I'm prone to reject the argument that that's a sexist move by the movie, <laughs> but I, I would love to hear what you guys thought of it. Go ahead and take a swing, Carter. Oh, swing. Okay. Well, I'll try. Um, I mean, I, I, gen- I generally, I would agree with you. Um, that he's, I don't think he's sexist per se. Um, he did invent, you know, the concept of the last girl yeah. after all. Um, I do think that sometimes, sometimes I just wonder because the thing doesn't have any female characters at all. Right. And there's a, uh, and you know, the, there's other films like this one where, where, you know, there are, well, they live. The only female character is, you know, an evil temptress. Right. Um, so, so I, I I wouldn't say he's sexist. Maybe his you know maybe his take on women's roles in films are is a bit dated at times, but that's to be a bit expected, I would imagine. Um, in this film, I hadn't really thought about that angle. To be honest with you, it it is true though that there there's kind of a they're kind of like this um, they're kind of natal in the in in their role in the film where like like you said they're the hosts they carry it. Um, they carry the, the, the evil and transfer it early on. They're also, you know, there's the, the sort of pregnancy scene where she swells up and then her body like reabsorbs the liquid and she's, you know, um, princess scabby or whatever. (laughs) Um, I, I made names for a lot of people in this film, including it's, 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 yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so I guess, 
he might be playing on if I had to take a swing at it, as Nathan suggested, I would say that he's playing with um, primordial tropes, which is an archetypes, which is what the bait, the basic foundation of the film is. Right. Um, The basic premise of the film is that the evil that we all fear, the bump in the night that the cavemen heard, right? The thing that humanity has always been afraid of and given names to like Satan, et cetera, et cetera, is in fact um, all goes back to this one primordial um, El Diablo Gupo, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) as I dubbed (laughs) the devil. so since he's dealing with primordial archetypes, I, I would say, and you know, maybe this is getting too heady for Carpenter. It's, it's hard to know with him, but I would say that, uh, um, he's, he's giving them the, let's call it throughout human history, the traditional female role, good or bad. He, he's playing on that archetype and, and maybe even, um, and even playing with ideas like, um, especially with the pregnant woman ideas like the, the, the virgin birth, right? Yeah. She's like the, where there's an antichrist and an anti-God, there's an anti-matter. There's also an anti-Mary who has to bear, um, the anti-God right in, in her womb. Um, uh, but it, yeah, that, that would be my, my most generous take on it is that Carpenter's since he's already dealing with primal archetypes, that's what he's doing here is he's just playing to those archetypes. Um, uh, but that's, that's the, the, the best I got. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And, and about all I would add to that, I think Carter's basically got it right. Uh, is that add to that, you know, the, the sort of closing scene in which Catherine becomes the self-sacrificing martyr. Right. And, you know, I mean, you kind of get the, the, that last archetype added onto it, right? You know, you've got the, the Virgin mother and the, you know, the mindless disciples and the temptress and so on and so forth. And then add to that, the, you know, uh, perpetual and felicitas martyr figure. And, you know, you, you do have just this, you know, catalog of, um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, very historically rooted types of roles, you know, in these kinds of episodes for women. Yeah. And honestly, incidentally, that image of her, on the other side of the mirror after she's pushed um, Satan and his father back through um, where she's like, like slowly kind of drifting out of our dimension. That is one of the more chilling images in all of John Carpenter. I think that's one of his, like, I don't I can't remember the name of the cinematographer for this movie, but that is uh, one of the finest images I think in, in all of his movies. But um, that uh, is pretty, it is pretty dark when yeah. you think about <laughs> how that movie ends. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a pretty, pretty brutal ending. I, the only thing, so here's me maybe overreading. I always admit to my class that I have a propensity to overread sometimes, um, which it's not like Wait, biggest, you're an English professor. Well, that's right, what I Danny? keep saying. It's not like the biggest problem in our <laughs> world is people overthinking things, right? And so it's okay to overthink things. I'd rather err on that side. But um, I, I would say if you look at the way in which all of those women are treated by the men in this movie, right from the beginning, Catherine is the subject of this really creepy gaze by um, Brian Marsh, the kind of, I guess, male protagonist of the movie, um, who is played by the actor Jameson uh, Parker from uh, uh, Simon and Simon. I remember the TV show. That's I've never seen him in another movie. But when I was a kid growing up, I used to love Simon and Simon. And it's the only other movie I've seen in him. In. But, um, but he's got this real 
sexist kind of fixation on her from the beginning and even makes he's sexist. a confirmed sexist and proud of it and he says this to I, her right I, I i wrote down that line yeah and he says <laughs> and, this to her and it's like the mustache was a dead giveaway you don't have to explain <laughs> <laughs> yeah but he, he, he i mean turns out he truly has like affectionate feelings for her but there is a way in which there's a kind of preying upon her um, implied in the way he just it's vaguely stalky um, uh, at the beginning of the movie um, and then particularly with Susan who's the first person infected by the goo um, she is like did you notice the motif of everybody forgetting her like someone says where's Susan who's Susan you know the radiologist oh that happens like three or four the times one with glasses yeah the one with glasses right <laughs> there's like, one point, uh, yeah yeah multiple times yeah yeah. That 17 grad students, only one of them wears glasses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then with um, uh, Lisa, I think her name is, the uh, the theology PhD student who's Asian, and um, Dennis Dunn, who's and who, big... and who, and who translates a- ancient texts into King James English. Yes. Which I, I <laughs> as I, one does. I, 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 I'm probably the only person who got hung up on that, but I'm like, okay, it's 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 the mid '80s. Like you can translate it into you know our English. I, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm a I'm an Anglican priest, but come on, even I'm not going to do Queen's English on this. You know, come true on. Enough. True enough. True enough. But she's kind of like harassed um, by uh, Den- Walter, who's played by Dennis Dunn, who you would remember from Big Trouble in Little China. Who I think uh, is yeah, gay, yeah, that... by the way. I think he's coded as gay pretty pretty strongly. The the character. <laughs> yeah, he's overly he... aggressive towards women, well-dressed, and he's shoved into a literal closet. Yes, and he's also like um, overtly, like he tries to push publicly against that, right? He's like, I, oh, they used to call it homosexual panic or whatever, right? Yep, but, it's actively mentioned. Yep, yeah, yep. but but he um, but he sort of like makes very rude, sexist uh, responses and and kind of like racial jokes and all that kind of thing, right? He's definitely overcompensating for something, right? right? I mean, he's he's the same character from Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I mean, he, he's the the wise cracking foul mouth Chinese sidekick. Yeah, yeah. Who's also a coward. No one, no yeah. one will ever accuse John Carpenter of having too wide a panoply of characters in his films. <laughs> well, he works with the same people. But, but my 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 larger point is though. So these these same women are kind of like, in some ways, undermined and rejected, or you know, used in various ways by the men, the human men in these films. And so, in some ways, from the the dark father's like perspective, there is almost like a redemption um, that he's like, he's bringing his truth into this world through them. Right. And so it does have this kind of like, uh, like very interesting kind of inversion of, of, um, of the cho of being chosen by a, by a deity. Right. And so these first disciples, unlike in our, you know, traditional view of Christianity, this is like a direct inversion of all of that. And, and so I think like, so basically Susan becomes like John the Baptist, right? You can, you can think of it in that way. Uh, and, and then she sort of converts a few other people and, and together they bestow the quote, Holy Spirit <laughs> upon, uh, upon uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kelly. And so, so yeah, that, that would be how I would sort of like, complicate the the gender dynamics in this movie um if i were uh if i had to which i guess i do but um um any any other thoughts on that before we we kind of move on um like i said i i really love the performances in this movie and i i love dennis dunn and i would kind of just go back to um the sidekick remark that nathan just made i actually think that big trouble in little china is interesting because it's 
it's almost like a parody of like a, a white Western view, a, a like white savior movie. Like Kurt Russell behaves as if he's the hero of the movie, but in reality, he is the sidekick. Of he the, absolutely, but just no, doesn't I think understand it's a, that. Absolutely right? a racial inversion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's it's it's it's. I think that's absolutely what's going on in Big Trouble in Little China, where he's like loading his. There's that scene where he's like trying to get his gun to work and reloading it. Yes. Meanwhile, his, the quote unquote sidekick is just demolishing everyone uh, yes. physically. And then he's like, "Oh, I don't have to do anything." <laughs> yeah, um, it, yeah. It's good. It's good. Carpenter likes to do that. He yeah, likes yeah. to to be sneaky. And I think your point, I think your point is is actually a, a really interesting one, Danny. I, I I don't I don't I don't think you're overreading it. As I'm thinking about what you just said, I'm I'm I think that it seems pretty strongly what he's trying to do there. Yeah, I, I just like, I, I mean, and he is my favorite artist. And so I am admittedly uh, prone to over defend him probably. <laughs> and so, uh, but this is one way I, I feel like I have some, uh, some, some basis for my, my argument there. But um, I, I want to make sure that we cover all the theological bases though. Um, before we, we do that though, I just want to mention one thing I love about the kind of John Carpenter movies I really love are the classic like slow burn ones, right? Where lots of atmosphere, lots of still establishing shots, lots of use of the weird and the eerie. I've talked about this in other podcasts, but um, it's, I don't know. I don't want to bore you guys with it again, but, uh, but there, there's a, I, I, and this movie really does that. Uh, it's a real kind of throwback to Halloween in that way. There's a very kind of slow build up, and it's mysterious and, and it's, it's, tension building um and then then before it sort of unwinds into the action of this movie i really appreciate the tone and atmosphere uh, of, a, of a classic john carpenter movie and i really think that this kind of falls into that that mode i don't know if you guys thought about that i guess not like i said film illiterate carter take that one <laughs> <laughs> i agree um, I think uh, cinematography is one of John Carpenter's greatest strengths, for sure. Um, I, uh, the still shots are what make his movies sometimes. And and it's the contrast between the still shots and then the rapid action that happens. Because, like, especially with The Thing, like, when something happens, it happens like that, yeah. right? It is fast. So fast, even with, like, the the practical effects he's using. Sometimes it's so fast, you he... he, he I don't know if he invented the jump scare, but he perfected it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And but at the same time, I think what makes that so effective is the contrast with those moments of just pure silence and stillness. Yeah. In this film, in particular, um, it's the shots of the chapel underneath where Goopy Devil is, yeah. and, and you got all the you know you got a thousand candles breaking so many fire codes, <laughs> um, right? Just all over the floors. But there's all like those shots. It's the candles. It's the Goopy Devil in the center, and then like crucifixes all up the wall. And then, the, but the ones that really got me in this film, the ones that really like gave me the um, the heebie-jeebies, were when the um, the crowd of of um, of homeless folk, yeah. the transients who live outside the church how they're kind of they're not carriers for the devil but it's like and, and it's so they're not it's not like they're possessed but they are like influenced some they're being controlled somehow or, or motivated somehow and you get a lot of these shots like um 
in like where you just see a line of them standing and staring dead eyed at someone and like just like a whole line of them watching. And then a few moments later, like there's this that it builds all this tension and then there's a break in the tension, like with um, uh, a mullet man there, uh, the one who says that it's all caca, which yeah. has to be the most brilliant line in the entire film. <laughs> um, and he's just standing there and then he turns and he sees this line of these, you know, these influenced people. And then and you're like, you're creeped out. You think they're going to mob him. And then all of a sudden one, uh, one runs from the other direction out of an alleyway and like, you know, stabs him 50 times. Yeah. Um, that, that kind of, um, tension building and scene setting and atmosphere is really what Carpenter, I think, um, really what makes his films engaging. So I, I mentioned this, um, I, when I teach the horror film class, forgive me, if you've listened to me on other podcasts, I'm sure I brought this up before. Um, the the Mark Fisher book, The Weird and the Eerie, is a really terrific little book that takes Freud's concept of the uncanny and basically dives into it and kind of complicates it a little bit. And he comes up with these terms, the weird and the eerie. The weird is very much like weird fiction, like H.P. Lovecraft, something from another place that is imposed into a into our dimension, right? And so that's uh we've talked enough about that. Um but the eerie is basically what Fisher calls a failure of absence or a failure of presence. So you can think of a place that should have nothing, but there are is something. So there's homeless people showing up. Um they don't belong there. And um and so it's eerie to see them all lined up. And there. Alice Cooper's not homeless. Right. What's going on? <laughs> And Alice Cooper is the leader of this band. Exactly. Um, such a great, such a delicious discovery when I watched this for the first yes. time. And I'm like, wait, is that? No. Yeah. Wait, it is. Yeah. And, and the other end of that is a, a failure of um, absence where something shouldn't, or where some, a presence where something should be there that isn't. So if you're in a, like uh, the mall scenes in Dawn of the Dead, right? An empty mall is inherently eerie, right? Because of this reason. And so um, John Carpenter's, I think, music uh, makes it takes advantage of this too. There's this kind of pulsating, pounding um, quality to his music as if something's beating to get into our dimension. And, uh, and, and I think that he made the tone and atmosphere. I mean, that's, that's why I, that's the, the, his mastery is just sort of inventing these worlds where chaos is just lurking on the other side. And, and he uses these weird and eerie um, elements of these movies um, to perfection, I think in this movie, particularly. So, um, but um, I want to have Nathan to have his full say about theological uh, issues with this movie though. Um, um, so beyond the kind of like, Dan Brown, ancient aliens kind of metaphysic. I, I, there is some interesting um, ideas, I think, being bandied about between the scientists and the priest. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, I mean, one of them is, you know, I mean, this is sort of a pre-cliche reference to, you know, Schrodinger and, you know, the, the cat that's both dead and alive until observed. Uh, that one gets used early on in the film. Uh, you know, like I said, I... I I do think that, you know, I mean, um, it loses something, uh, you know, because we can't uh, name a motive for the father of Satan. Uh, you know, I mean, and again, I, I realize I keep hammering away at this, but I mean, you know, if you think of, you know, sort of the great Satans of literature, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whether you talk about Milton's, you know, character whose name is actually Satan, uh, you know, or whether you're thinking about Iago Edmund from Shakespeare, um, 
or, you know, I mean, just, just a, a host of other, you know, sort of core antagonist characters. Uh, what they all have in common is that they seek to usurp something that is greater than themselves. Mm. Uh, and, you know, because uh, there's no reference to anything, you know, uh, higher than God and anti-God, uh, you know, I mean, the context in which you could make judgments about, you know, which one is good and which one is evil just kind of falls apart for me. Uh, now, again, you know, I don't think that that's fatal by any means. You know, obviously, you know, Lovecraftian fiction has a whole lot of uh, fans in the world. Uh, but I do think, for instance, um, you know, when the when the priest at the end says, you know, we stopped it, I stopped it, uh, you know, I, I found myself wondering, okay, I mean, you know, in this moral universe, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because, I mean, if, you know, anti-God is simply the next step in evolution for this planet, then, you know, all this does is delay something that is morally null, uh, but is either going to happen or isn't going to happen. So, therefore, you know, why should it be a, a matter of terror, right? Um, so, you know, like I said, I mean, you know, I, I, re I realize that, you know, as someone who reads, you know, Lovecraft stories and scratches my head rather than trembling in fear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I am just the, the wrong guy to be watching this. That said, given that limitation, uh, I do think that, you know, I mean, the, the very biological terror of all of it uh, is precisely what a story like this needs to go to, right? Mm. Because, I mean... Uh, what you are looking at, if you don't have a a notion that evil is parasitic on good, is that you've just got the unknown. You've got the strange. You've got evolution coming. And, you know, I mean, uh, I suppose, you know, I mean, if you are the, uh, you know, ancestor species and you're just waiting to be wiped out by the descendant species, then I guess that kind of sucks. But... Uh, you know, as far as, you know, psychological terror, it just doesn't inspire it in me because it's, it, it, it would be like being, you know, terrified of, uh, you know, the fact that I'm going to have to brush my teeth tonight. It's like, ah, those, <laughs> those damn bacteria, they're growing again. Ah, you know, so like I said, I mean, I, 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 I going back to my film illiteracy, I think that the uh, you know this conversation is falling victim to it because I, I I when I listen to you two describe it I'm thinking okay there's something here worth talking about I just don't know what it is. Well, one thing. Oh well, let me Carter. Did you want to um, follow up with anything? I do, but why don't you go ahead okay. first? Well, one thing. I mean, I guess I, I have a question for you. Is a controversial theological topic on you know social media at least <laughs> for people as if and whether that's the real world or not i'll leave it up to you to decide and, and danny's about to pose this question to a guy who deleted his twitter two and a half years ago but go ahead well, but I, and another one who never had one i, I, I find <laughs> like most normal people don't actually care about the things that are very important on twitter right but one of the things on on theology twitter that's very important is um, penal substitutionary atonement Right. Um, and sure, so, sure. And so that is a, a, a point of controversy. And, you know, I, I, in some ways for myself, I think of myself as having somehow trans, you know, come out of a little bit of the ways that I've grown up with religion. And yet 
that concept still holds some weight for me, right? Um, and so I guess I, I guess I still believe in original sin. <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, I um, do too. I do too. So, yeah. Um, but, hey, likewise. But this movie, like, um, completely like shatters. I mean, the very foundations of the church. Then, um, if there was no actual sin originating in human beings and and the characters actually say this uh they they come to this kind of conclusion through the translation of the text that uh lisa comes up with the um they actually say this that it was never within us it was always from outside right and and so um that utterly i guess how does the lack of penal substitutionary atonement change christianity well, I mean, you know, first of all, I mean, the lack of penal substitutionary atonement doesn't mean that sin goes away. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I can think of, of several theologies. I mean, Peter Abelard's moral exemplar theology or, you know, patristic. Christus Victor. Yep, Christus Victor yeah. theology, where, I mean, you know, the, the primary movement is not towards satisfying the either the, you know, the wrath of the Father in, in sort of, you know, later iterations of it or the justice of God in sort of turn of the second millennium versions of it. Um, but, I mean, you know, uh, if sin is, as, you know, so many images images of sin have it, um, a disease that still presumes a state of spiritual and physical health from which, you know, humanity has fallen, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so, I mean, you know, uh, if, if you're going to say that, you know, uh, evil comes from outside, um, I, I think that, you know, at least on some level, uh, you know, Augustinian traditions of theology would basically agree that, uh, the goodness of God, you know, God creates and says it is very good is primordial. And, you know, the distortions that we call sin and evil are somehow secondary. I think where, you know, Lovecraftian fiction more generally in this movie in particular, uh, diverge from that, uh, is that, you know, they present, good and evil, um, I wouldn't say in, in, in Pelagian terms, I'd say in Manichaean terms mm. where, you know, they are two I'd agree. fundamentally, you know, opposing forces, uh, neither of which depends on each other mm. the way that evil depends on good, but good doesn't depend on evil mm. in a more Augustinian theology. Right. And, and I guess to be horrified, I have to have a sense that something primordially good is being threatened now i mean if if it's just an evolutionary force without any kind of moral importance that might replace me i mean yeah that kind of sucks but i mean you know that there's not a sense that um you know uh something good is being threatened by something evil it's just you know one evolutionary hiccup is replacing another evolutionary hiccup Right. But that's that. Yeah, that's, go that's, ahead, Carter. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. That, 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 like, I, I yeah, I, I absolutely I, I agree with everything you just said there, ex, except that I think that. Oh, that terrifies thinking, me. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I think you're thinking of it in an abstraction, right? Like, oh, well, that sucks. But, you know, it's just what happens. But that's thinking about it in an abstraction. If you're in that situation and you're the you're the thing that's that's a very existence is being threatened, not just yours, but like the whole species then, you know, it's, it's a little, there's a little more buy-in, I guess, <laughs> than, than saying, well, it's just evolution and it just happens, right? Like the, you know, uh, animals feel fear before we kill them to eat them. Um, 
we have to like in this particular world that's been created a person like like a carpenter or lovecraft is trying to get us to feel like the the dumb animal that doesn't see it coming until it's too late right yeah but with that interval of literary irony it's hard for me to get into that right because there's not actually goopy green satan you know, threatening to pee in my mouth. I'm, I'm just watching that happen to other people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Dan. I, I, re- I realized that like 17 times I've used that phrase, but we're still about short of the times it happens dead. in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess what I'm, I, I, what I'm interested in is if the, the Jesus of this universe of this movie's universe um, is still, does still does he still count as a kind of savior? I mean, he was killed. I mean, he, he he's not a universal savior because he is a positive threat to the dark side, the anti god. Yeah, and the anti god doesn't have any moral standing that is more. Uh, he doesn't have any moral standing that is radically different from the god side of things. They're just wearing the the, the jerseys of different teams. Right. So, I mean, you know, so, I mean, it happens that I'm wearing the, you know, human life jersey and, you know, the Sistine Chapel hand grabby guy is wearing the jersey of the other team. But I mean, again, with that distance of irony, I'm not actually and, you know, part of it is, I mean, I'll go ahead and confess just because, I mean, you know, I was watching this while folding laundry on a tablet screen. I wasn't really immersed in the experience the way that someone in a movie theater would have been. Right. So I'll grant that. I mean, you know, uh, it was in a very, you know, geographic sense, a little corner of my existence while socks and underwear were really the primary thing occupying my attention. Yeah. Could I just jump in here on the theological discussion for a second? Yeah. Um, I, I, I do think that part of the, part of the difficulty here is the materiality with which Carpenter sets this up. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it is in a very real sense. Um, it got Carter. Sorry about it that. got I Carter. Got, I, yeah, it got me. <laughs> Devil, okay. Now I'm scared, Carter. I agree now. I agree now. <laughs> Um, so it's the, the, he sets that things up in a way where it is impl- explicitly ma- materialistic. I thought of the oft and probably too often quoted Arthur C. Clarke's line that um, um, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right? It's a classic science fiction thing. Um, that is definitely kind of what he's playing with here. But the, the materiality of of both God and anti-God, it, you know, it's linked to matter and anti-matter, which triggered, of course, my Star Trek brain. I'm like, mm-hmm. so they, it's the universe is a warp core. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, you know, the, uh, well, and, and it, it, he puts them on, on basically even playing terms, right? They're even playing terms and it's all about preventing one from breaking into the other. Right. It's 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 like a, a there's a demilitarized zone, which apparently is mirrors. And we're trying to prevent one side from breaking in and consuming the other side. And so this interloper of El Gupo is kept in a big canister. Right. A big pop can. And we have to keep that contained because we can't let it seep out and infect our side of the border. Right. 
I think that materiality that that he sets up really does make it difficult um, to have what we might call a Jesus figure in any real sense, because really all you're trying to do is maintain a status quo. It's it's very. Is it Taoist? Is that where we get sort of the yin yang symbol? Yeah, um, that's right? one of the places. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it feels to me like there's that that kind of tension here. So like really the only the only form of a savior that we can have is the one who prevents a takeover so the the character that what is her name the one at the end who, Catherine Catherine where um she pushes the other woman in and tackles her in but like she keeps her side of the border safe but that doesn't do a lot for Catherine yeah she's sacrificing herself but then she gets to spend existence and whatever the heck she's in on the other side right yeah um and then there's the very ambiguous ending where it almost seems like she's now become the embodiment of evil because she's like pushing and we even talk about like the future speaking to the past in this movie because that whole thing i wanted i wanted the more of that in this movie but we didn't get it um but all of that to say i think um because because everything's such on such a uh, even playing field you can't ever get a sense of real victory you can't get a sense of finality with this which is part of why it's kind of scarier to me is that it's like a never-ending battle and you just you never know if you're you know when someone's gonna fumble the ball and you're you're just done can, and you lose can, so can i um so it's a, being a Browns fan, basically, uh, is, what, <laughs> is what you're talking about. Um, me being from Cleveland and all, but um, can I um, throw a major monkey wrench into this though? When I'm watching this movie, I don't get the sense that there is a God and a dark God. I get the sense that there is only a dark God who happens to be controlling, who happens to be on the other side of this uh, dimensional border. Uh, I don't get the sense that there is his positive uh, in, in this, in this movie, um, in this movie's universe. I I don't, maybe I'm misreading it in that way, but at one point um, uh, Barack says something about uh, the way in which matter and antimatter interact across this dimensional plane on the quantum level and it's being controlled by its negative side right and so i get the sense that there that basically the dark god is actually a god right and and that god is actually the bad guy <laughs> in the universe is what is the way right. i understand the movie if if yeah, I don't know that they ever say that there is a god. I, I think you're right about that. I, I was in terms of setting up the parallels. I guess maybe I just assumed that there was a, a, a another parallel there, but it would make sense that there isn't because that would be actually the Love, Lovecraftian, right? Yeah. And what that would mean then is that the the dark god isn't really a god at all. It's just a sufficiently advanced being right and so it seems like a god to us and that's why another being another extraterrestrial aka jesus christ had to come and warn us because um his race was sufficiently advanced to recognize this other entity and and wanted to prevent you know prevent it making inroads here or something yes the god of satan (laughs) it's weird the god of satan is basically an old one in uh in lovecraftian terms right one of the great old ones yeah, yeah and um and so yeah jesus in this universe is another alien that's trying to get uh, a message out to us so that 
so we start developing a science that'll help us um, keep God from coming back, right? And so, um, yeah, for the sake of what though? Survival, our existence. It's almost like it's almost I mean, like why why is that a good thing? But it's almost like the alien because um, I don't want to not survive. Yeah, it, it, it's it almost like them. the alien universe. Then <laughs> in, in Ridley Scott's like Prometheus. Uh, extension of the aliens um, universe, there's the sense that we are, that our existence is an uh, evolutionary, you know, development by this um, alien race that is then trying to like kill us too. Right. Uh, there, there's this interesting way in which our, our existence and death are a part of this are tied to the same thing. And so it's a very deep, like, Freudian um, or maybe Lacanian like psychological concept about sort of um, maintaining um, distinction and, and maintaining like existence and staving off death. And, and I think that that's, I think if I had to go to a, a kind of psychological reading of this movie, that's, that's why it matters is just because human beings want to continue to exist. <laughs> and so that that's basically. Yeah. And I, and I guess if it's just that arbitrary, and if I'm experiencing it, you know, mediated by the irony of fiction, it just doesn't draw me in. Well, I mean, it seems to me you need a, I mean, you're basically suggesting that if there is no God, there is no purpose in living. Um, and so that that's kind of, I mean, which is a fair point. I'm not saying that you're wrong about that even, <laughs> but, uh, but I, but I think that your critiques of the theology of this movie are based on that insistence. And I'm just trying to put myself in the world that's been created here. Well, and I mean, I, I would extend it a little bit further. I would say if there, if, if God is not good, then it all just kind of seems arbitrary. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But Hey, even animals want to stay alive, man. <laughs> I mean, that, That's the nature of life, right? It just, it pre to preserve <laughs> itself. And um, yeah, but and, that and, doesn't make a, for, for me, that doesn't make a compelling narrative, right? Okay, right. So you're not saying that people won't won't believe it or live by it, but you're saying that it's hard to make that a compelling narrative. Well, yeah, and I, and I thought that's what Which is a different question. We're supposed to be is compelling right. narratives. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it does because I mean, but I kind of see it. I kind of see a film like this, the Lovecraftian type films. I see them much more in a, a sort of a, a Camusian. Yes. Um, the myth, myth of Sisyphusy kind of Sisyphusy, yeah. yeah. Way, um, so so much fun to say that myth of Sisyphus. Um, I I see them in that kind of way where it's it's like okay, none of it means anything. There's no intrinsic meaning to be found in the universe. I have to keep pushing the stupid rock up a hill. If there if there is an entity out there, or if there isn't an entity out there. Whichever is true, I'm going to live in rebellion to the fact that I have to keep living this meaningless existence. That's that my my own creation of meaning is my purpose for for living. Um, I, so I, I, I it's it's all it, you know it's um what's that uh, uh, Prometheus Unbound? It's it's Blake reading Milton's yeah. Satan, right? It's it's that I think that's the narrative that is trying to be gotten across here is trying to survive in defiance of the fact that the universe that I can't understand is trying to murder me. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that that's a, I mean, I think that's a timeless literary question. Um, and so, I mean, I think that I, I totally agree. I do. I, I wouldn't say timeless. I'd say 300 years old max. <laughs> well, <laughs>
<laughs> for me, that's timeless. Okay. Well, um, for, 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 me, for, for me, that's last weekend. <laughs> that's kind of how I read Gilgamesh, but you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, but yeah, the, yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and I think, yeah, it is tracing it back to Blake, I think is a perfect, um, a perfect way to, uh, to do that. The whole marriage of heaven and hell thing. Right. And so, um, no, I, I completely agree. And I think it's a compelling, um, narrative just, you know, the, and I think that's what Lovecraft is picking up on when he kind of invents this, this form of horror. Yeah. And I, and I guess, and, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm trying to formulate this because, you know, I'm, I'm not articulating it well, but I mean, I feel like that is a sort of vestige of a recognizable Christian Muslim, you know, monotheistic ethos, uh, you know, that is still giving form to, the emotional experience of the movie, even as the intellectual framework of the movie militates against it. Cause I mean, in order to say that, you know, human life is worth preserving. I mean, you know, uh, why is it worth more than the father of Satan being able to flourish as whatever life form it is? Cause he's a jerk. <laughs> Says who? Me. He's trying to stick his clawed, clawed hand into my universe. Stay out. Yeah. So, so, so it's ethical nimbyism. <laughs> I, it's all, it's all, it's all, uh, it, it, again, I think, I think we can take it in an each direction. It is, it is, um, the exertion of will. It's just like, it's trying to exert his will over us and we don't want it to. So it's whoever, whoever's going to win is going to win and whoever loses, well, they lose. Yeah. And that, yeah. I, I mean, for me, it's like, what makes it scary is the, is the notion that everything is meaningless. Right. Um, and, and if this is true, then, but, but if it is all meaningless, what are we afraid of? I, I, <laughs> I mean, no one thinks about that, right? That, that, I do, but that, but that's—I <laughs> don't know—in a practical matter, that's not but, like a question. But, but, but I feel like I said in like minute five of this podcast, I'm the wrong audience for this movie, so I'll, I'll grant that. I'll grant that. <laughs> yeah, I wish I would have known you didn't like Lovecraft before. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, that is an essential. I mean, that is an essential source text for many John Carpenter movies, um, particularly this one. And so, um, yeah, I had no idea you had such like antipathy for. It. I'm teaching a Lovecraft J term class this semester, by the way. Um, oh, and, 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 and and you know, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the typical liberal line here. A lot of a lot of my good friends are Lovecraftians, but you know, I I uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I it might just be that my the my own lim- intellectual limitations, but. Yeah, I, they, once you tell me nothing means anything, then after that point, nothing means anything. I mean, nothing means anything. Okay, what I mean by that is our lives don't mean anything to this all-powerful being, right? And that's what's scary is that we right. are we are insignificant to them. That doesn't mean I think I'm insignificant, right? So I mean, do, do you consider it a horror movie when somebody takes an antibiotic? I mean, maybe from the per- if they were told from the perspective of the virus from the bacteria, then yes, yeah, sure. exactly. But That's but emotionally, point. have you experienced this terror when you've taken an antibiotic? Well, but, I'm not the bacteria. Yeah, I'm not the bacteria, right? I, I, honestly, that's a great. If anybody out there wants I'm to the write, I'm the god that, in this situation. That's so actually a fantastic. Uh, well, someone actually told me that someone has written when I was talking about having finished the Who Goes There um, book over the summer. Someone said, "Was it you, Carter? I don't or Jordan? I don't." Somebody said that there are like alternative versions 
of that where someone writes it from the thing's uh, point of view and that from its point of view, it's actually um, rationalizing an irrational race uh, by um, by taking it over. And so it's making it a statement like Nathan is making here, actually. Um, it, it's well, the and that's and, and that sounds well, no, no, no. And, and both the Borg and that scenario that you just narrated they both have a sense of a rationality that transcends the struggle between the two species. Yeah. In other words, it will be materially better if this species rather than that one is ascendant. So, I mean, when I take an antibiotic, I'm making an ethical commitment to the superiority of the human life over the propagation of the bacterium. Yeah. And I'm all right with that because again, you know, that is uh, a hierarchy I'm willing to live with. Right now, in this in this movie, though, like we keep saying that there's no there's no motivation for the monster, so to speak. But I'm not sure. Okay, so I'll acknowledge that it's not said explicitly, and I'll acknowledge that the the father of Satan is not given any airtime really, aside from the the Sistine Chapel yeah. scene. But I think there's a pretty strongly implied subtext that that the the purpose and the end goal of this entity is to dominate our side of the border to dominate our world. Mm -hmm. It's like whether that means order or whether that means simply power for power's sake, like it's clearly motivated to be here in order to dominate our, like, like the life of this world, whatever that means. And, and in the moral universe of the movie, is that better or is that worse? Mm hmm. So basically, Nathan, listener, is saying there are very fine people on both sides of the mirror. Um, and so <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, now, now, just a moment, because no, let's let's examine that. Okay. Let's examine that, because in the moral universe you are describing, that is in fact true. Is it not? I, I mean, so it in order to say that the father of Satan should not, in fact, dominate, instead of human beings dominating, because that seems to be the world that you know, opens up the film uh, that, you know, one of the sides would have to be better than the other, which I would say was the fact in Charlottesville. Hmm. But we don't know. We don't actually know what the other side is like. Uh, precisely. So again, well, if nothing matters, then I come to think that nothing matters. Well, what Matt, but again, what matters is that we like we, the people in the film are people and we relate to those people and we don't want those people to For die and be destroyed. For what reason? Because they're people like us. So just, just mirror egoism. It's, it's well, sure, probably, <laughs> but it's like, it's, it's a evolutionary community sort of, um, uh, like group empathy. Yeah. And I'm a Christian. I'm a priest. Like I'm not disagreeing <laughs> yeah, with, your, with your freaking metaphysics. Here. Got better. I just, I'm trying to get into the movie, man. No, 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 no. And, and, and like I said, it, it, you know, I mean, when I'm actually driving on I 85, I am terrified, but when it's happening on the other side of the screen, I, it's hard for me to get into that, you know, emotionally, because it is so incoherent intellectually. Yeah. I guess also, I mean, your belief system about good um, making th these tensions coherent, right? Um, there has to be like a, a clearly defined good uh, in order. Well, there, there doesn't have to be, but if there's not, then nothing means anything. But okay. So, but even in day-to-day -day life, 
there's no sort of pragmatic way to measure that there is God and that there is a an actual that's a that's a faith statement on your that's a, 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 a that's a a stance of faith on your part and so and also a historical statement. We just don't have the physics yet, Danny. Well, that's my point, right? And, and that, that's what I'm saying, right? And so, I mean, to, to like hold, I, don't, I guess what I'm saying is um, the uh, the standard that you're sort of judging this movie against only holds because you believe it to be true in your life. Otherwise, there are people who walk around in our world who don't believe in God, you know, atheists and such, right? And, and so, um, like... And, and I'd say that to the extent that they have the kind of moral vision that you two are imposing on this movie, that there are vestiges of that historical phenomenon that we can call Islam, Christianity, Judaism, that are still influencing their judgments. Okay. Even if they deny them intellectually emotionally they are still vestigially there yeah i i don't know i imagine that i mean that's if, a pretty Nietzschean statement too yeah i i imagine well, yeah, yeah i read a lot of Nietzsche. <laughs> what, what no, am he, i gonna he, do he's right though you're not wrong but i imagine if there are like atheists like walking around and, and okay so go outside of the sphere of influence of you know middle eastern religious uh you know influence from from the Term. You'd have to go pretty far. Okay. But I mean, so find one, find something, uh, find some tribal, uh, you know, that's had been hidden away forever. Right. And if there are aliens from another planet attacking, they're going to draw moral conclusions about who's better and who's worse. Right. And they're going to be rooted in certain kinds of narratives. Okay. And my point is that, yeah, they'll still be the, subjective the, though. Yeah. Ah, uh, subjective or contingent. I'd, or at I'd least be more or contingent. To contingent. They're, they're going to be right? contingent and possibly subjective. And yes, and, and I'll, I'll go ahead and grant that, I mean, you know, Christianity is a supremely historically contingent tradition. It's a desert tribe that gives birth to, you know, someone who claims to be the anointed one and who, you know, whose tradition spreads out to the nations and so on and so forth. I mean, it doesn't come from nowhere. It's very historically contingent. And also, it provides a framework that, like I said, needs to be in place for us to say that, you know, we would prefer for Brian and Catherine to make it out of this thing and for us to say that it's a dark, dark thing for Catherine to fade into the dark dimension. Uh, you know, I mean, if the dark dimension is basically just an evolutionary, you know, possibility, uh, then her entrance into the dark dimension actually might be an improvement. I, I I think I have the I think I have the definitive counter argument. Hit me. The bad guy's goopy. <laughs> He's goopy. I mean, come on. Corporeality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Any peas in people's mouths. Yes. But I mean eighteen. I, eighteen. <laughs> I, I just uh I, I just find it. I, I I'm not compelled by the idea that an atheist or a, a, a of any kind who doesn't necessarily believe in a coherent good in the universe would just receive their own annihilation from beyond with like, well, that's just, uh, you know, the way evolution goes. Right. And, and so I, I think that it is inherently scary, no matter where your sort of belief systems are rooted. The, because the, it's primal. Yes. And it's built into us regardless. Yeah. You can't abstract yourself it, from the thing you're experiencing. If you are, but you can, if it's fiction, but, but if the, but we're reacting, Indeed. yes, but we're <laughs> reacting to it because we were sort of relating to it. And even if you just boil everything down to a pure evolutionary process, um, the act of not existing is terrifying. 
um, and, um, just as a, a function of evolution. Um, and so like, I, I think that even if you completely despiritually, completely materialize uh, the world of this uh, movie, I think it's still scary. Just the, the act of having your entire way of life being annihilated. I mean, it's like saying the asteroid and, is that's, you know, the, when the asteroid comes and blows up the earth, that's just uh, how the cookie crumbles. And we shouldn't really be mad about that. You know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't, no, well, what I am saying, though, is that if you do think that something genuinely good has been eliminated when that asteroid hits, you are borrowing capital from historically contingent traditions that you're pretending not to be involved with. No, I'll buy absolutely. that argument. I'll buy that argument, the, actually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But these are physics PhDs. They're not philosophers, so yeah. they don't think about that. <laughs> Honestly, Barack is more like a philosopher than a, than a, a, a PhD or than a physics Yeah, a working right? man's philosopher, yeah, which yeah. is which is uh, Carpenter's whole, whole deal, which, yeah. incidentally, I do have a recommendation for people if they like this style of Lovecraftian narrative. Um, there's an author named Michael Shea. He's no longer with us, but Michael Shea does a, he does basically the short story version of what Carpenter's doing here, which is it's all, they're almost all set in San Francisco. And, and it's, it's he literally, he's playing around in the Lovecraft universe, the mythos, but he's not doing it with, you know, academics who get afraid and go insane. He's doing it with like working class people, homeless people, prostitutes, like people like this are the ones encountering the Lovecraftian monster, and it's it it has a total Carpenter vibe. Um, so Michael Shea is really really fun if people like this particular type of take on uh, that that cosmic horror story. Yeah, write that one down. That's great. And honestly, Nathan, I'm glad we kind of came to a point of like agreement here. Um, I, I would actually buy that argument as a as a Christian myself that um, that people who even like deny that still internalize um, an essential parts of the morality. Right. Um, I, I think. I, oh I, yeah. And, and by the way, I didn't invent this. I'm totally getting it from Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, j- just in case listeners, you know, think that I'm arrogant enough to think that this is an original thought. I know it's no. not. And, and Nietzsche's <laughs> not wrong. I, I would say, I would agree. Yeah. Like <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I, I completely agree with this point. And that's a fine way to uh, end this. Uh, <laughs> getting a little dusty there but honestly what a fun conversation i I was i uh really kind of not expecting to go um this long a um it's midnight here now and i have to walk through the creepy hallways here but um but also (laughs) um i also like learned a lot about like theology and kind of see things from a different perspective here and so i'm very very um excited about this show i'm uh definitely not i mean i don't know it would be just like pure ironic for me to play Satan, your kingdom must come down since it really doesn't matter if it's Satan's kingdom or God's. It's just the fact it's just the nature of evolution. I told you Megadeth's <laughs> you Prince know. of Darkness is what we should be playing right now. But no you know, sa- 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 Satan's wearing the other team's jersey, so yeah. his kingdom must come down. <laughs> exactly. Who knew Nathan was such a relativist? I didn't <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, um, thank you guys for joining me. This was really, really fun. I really appreciate the time. And um, like I said, this is still one of my favorite John Carpenter movies. The Fog is my favorite of his movies. And this is um, like increasingly becoming uh, one of my other favorites. And so um, I really enjoyed the conversation and learned a lot from you guys. So I really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, I encourage everybody who's still listening, um, if you can still stand us to, uh, go back if you haven't and listen to the other episodes in this, uh, this crossover series. I think they're all the ones I've been on. (laughs) 
we've all been really fun uh, from my perspective. And uh, and hopefully you'll find something to, from each one of them to take. And uh, from me, I'm Danny Anderson saying goodbye for Nathan Gilmore and Carter Smith-Stepper. Thank you very much.